Hello and welcome back to Speak to a Lawyer. I'm your host, Avi Trani, and on this episode, I'm honored to speak to a legendary securities litigator, Joseph Groyer. He's a man of strong principles and convictions, a brilliant lawyer with experience not only as one representing clients, but also as a defendant himself. Of course, I'm referring to the famous Groyer vs. Law Society of Upper Canada case that went on for nearly a decade, cost millions of dollars, and went all the way up to the Supreme Court before Joe, of course, was acquitted. Joe is a frequent speaker and educator, as you'll be able to tell from the moment he opens his mouth. But it wasn't always that way. Joe has humble beginnings and a working class background. He worked for the Securities Commission before joining Heenan Blakey as their first litigator in Toronto. As was heard from prior episodes, Heenan Blakey didn't last. So in the year 2000, Joe went on to start his own power firm on Bay Street. In May 2015, Joe was elected by the bar to serve as a bencher of the Law Society Upper Canada, and now the Law Society of Ontario. Joe was kind enough to share a long list of book recommendations, which I'll put in the show notes. I covered a lot of ground with Joe, so this interview is split into two parts. Part one, go through a bit of a background, Joe's background, where he came from, and how he built his successful career. And part two, Joe talks about the details of the case against him. I'll start by asking Joe, what do benchers do? Well, the benchers are essentially the board of directors for the Law Society. And the Law Society, from my perspective, really has three distinct jobs or responsibilities. First of all, we are the regulator of the legal profession. So that means we are concerned with licensing, with discipline, with weeding out bad lawyers and and dishonest lawyers and really protecting the public from lawyers who are either not competent or not trustworthy. The second thing we do is we are concerned with improving standards of professional competence. So we do a lot of work on trying to educate and update lawyers' skills because in my view, you're not are looking to have just a competent lawyer. You're looking to have the most competent lawyer that you can possibly find for a particular problem. And then the third thing we do is we run a variety of other businesses. So we're in the catering business, the insurance business. We manage half of Osgoode Hall, which is a historic building that has a lot of challenges. Um, And we really do provide a very mixed bag of other things goes beyond simply being a regulator. I was just uh, appointed the new chair of audit and finance, which is, I'm sure, going to be a mixed blessing over the next few years. But there's going to be a lot of discussion about the extent to which the Law Society needs to tailor back some of the things it does and become much more focused on what, for me, are the two core aspects of what we should do. We should make sure we have honest lawyers and we need to make sure that we have highly skilled, competent lawyers. And when I say lawyers, of course, we also regulate the paralegal profession. There's talk about adding a new group called family service providers. Um, So my view is that anyone who goes to get legal advice from a person who's licensed by the Law Society is entitled to have someone who's honest, trustworthy, and highly skilled at what they do. 
sounds like a fascinating role. Is it very time-consuming or more like a pro bono? It, well, no, it's definitely pro bono because we agreed a few weeks ago to eliminate any charges we used to get a very small honorarium. When I got elected in 2015, I was in the middle of my law society fight. So it was a rather unusual time to become a bencher. And I think in my first six months, I spent six or 700 hours of reading and talking to people and getting advice and really learning all the things that a board member needs to know in order to be responsible in, in looking after the interests of the legal profession and the public. Um, after that very steep learning curve, I then sat on a few committees, became the chair of the compensation fund. And so I was probably spending more like 30 to 40 hours a month. Um, and now that I'm the chair of audit and finance, I've spent probably 150 hours in the last month uh, doing a huge amount of reading about the law society's finances and more importantly, what future-oriented financial information is telling me about the future of the law society's finances. So these are going to be very challenging times. There's already some pressure being put on the Law Society to take a good hard look at fees. And we have to be sensitive to the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a huge impact on all lawyers in the profession. At, by this, at the same time, uh, no, it's not simply possible for a regulator to say, well, we're not going to charge you anything. We're going to do this all for free and we'll figure out how the cost of regulating the profession will get dealt with by some other source of funding, which isn't available to us. Um, so it's it's a, I wouldn't call it a full-time job, but it's certainly a heavy part-time job. Um, and then the other thing that I do besides practice law is my family owns a winery in Niagara called 16 Mile Cellar, um, which is a wonderful way of being distracted from the practice of law and figuring out how to lose money in creative ways. So the wine business is a very tough business to be in, I can tell you. There's all those romantic ideals that any young person has about owning a winery and sitting around drinking wine. They should just throw them out the window. I remember not very long ago, the sump pump in our winery broke and somebody had to put their hand in unspeakable guck in order to clean it out and get it started again. And that was, I was given that job by a unanimous selection committee. So that, that, uh, that was a very long and awful day, I have to tell you. Wow, it really sounds like you have a lot going on and uh, you got your plate full over there. But before we get into the present, I'd like to just touch upon your background, how you started out and uh, what did you do before law and what made you decide to become a lawyer ultimately? Sure. I, I, I'm actually a person who considers himself very fortunate because at a very young age, I would have been nine or 10 years old, I 
discovered lawyers, Perry Mason on television, Clarence Darrow in, in a couple of books. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so my whole life before I went to law school was very much focused on just the assumption that was where I was going to end up. And I've often wondered, I remember the day my LSAT marks arrived. I was working in a lumber yard and came home for lunch and there was the envelope from Princeton. And I'd done pretty well in undergrad. So I thought I had a good chance of going to law school. But if I'd done a really bad LSAT, I didn't know if I'd get in. So as I sat there looking at the envelope before I opened it, I was really quite anxious about having never really thought about doing anything different. So I grew up in Blue and Lansdowne, a very tough working class neighborhood. I went to Brock Public School, Kent Senior Public and Bluer Collegiate. Um, I had my first job was when I was nine years old. I started doing the laundry for a fellow up the street and he paid me by giving me all of his uh, soda bottle empties that I got to take back to the store, but I got to keep the money. And I didn't realize at the time that there was a reason why there were so many empties, but I figured it out years later. Um, and then I got a job at the Canadian National Exhibition selling programs and hot dogs and Coca-Cola. Worked there for a few years. Uh, then I went to work at a lumberyard uh, that was originally called Saveway, well, Warden Lumber, then Saveway, then it became a beaver lumber. I worked there from 15 to when I actually got into law school is when I left there. Um, I did general contracting on the side, so I worked with a bunch of carpenters. I was the young kid who spoke good English, and they were lots of very talented tradespeople, but they were recent immigrants to the country. So I would be the, the little scrawny guy who would go around and quote the jobs, and if there was a problem, I was the one that would get yelled at. Um, and I did that until I went to law school as well. So. Um, as I say, I always had that as my career aspiration, and I've always been a bit uh, sympathetic to people who don't know what they want to do and sometimes end up going to law school because they, they can't get into med school and they don't really have any other idea about their career path. Um, so what do you think uh, it was about your background that led you to pursue law? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, my, my father was a bellman at the Royal York Hotel, and through that job, I got to meet people like Ella Fitzgerald and Count Basie and Tony Bennett. Um, I remember getting up one morning and Gump Worsley, who was then a goalie for the New York Rangers, was asleep on our living room couch because... Wow. He and my father had gone out, I guess, for a couple of beers after work, and one thing led to another. Uh, my mother worked at the post office, and, uh, you know, again, I, I don't know that there was anything about my background or education that really caused me to head in the direction of law. It was just one of those fortuitous events in life where you wake up one day realizing suddenly you've got a very keen interest in a particular career. And luckily, it's it's a wonderful profession to be in. Um, so, you know, what actually got me 
interested that way. I really don't know. I, I then, once I started to have an interest, I went to Saturday morning classes and took a course from a lawyer named Julian Romanko, who later got disbarred for stealing money from his trust account. Uh, and then later on, I, my parents uh, were dealing with another lawyer named George Ellis Chuck, and he got disbarred. So my legal role models before I got to law school were not necessarily the best you could have hoped for. Um, but then I was very lucky because I went to U of T and, and met some absolutely wonderful mentors and teachers. And that for me was an incredible uh, opportunity and in many ways the, the good things that have happened in my career are, have all been as a result of good luck just meeting people who gave me great advice at a time when you know if i'd had to make my own decisions i would have ended up somewhere else well i'll tell you a funny little anecdote when i was in senior public school at kent uh, I still had this ambition of going to law school, but I also worried, what would I do if I couldn't get there? And so rather than signing up for Bluer Collegiate, I signed up to go to Central Commerce, which was the sort of vocational business school. And the vice president, uh, the vice principal, rather, at Kent was a fellow by the name of Mr. Moore. Mr. Moore was also the disciplinarian. So you never wanted to be called down to Mr. Moore's office. And I got through a year and a half without ever having to say anything other than yes, sir, and no, sir, and all. Yeah. So one day I'm see, sitting in class and I get called down to Mr. Moore's office. So I'm absolutely terrified. And he's wearing an immaculate two-piece suit and it's a heavily starched shirt. And his office has got an empty desk. And uh, as I'm waiting outside, I hear him yelling at some kid who's in trouble. And I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is terrible. It's the end of my life. So that kid comes out looking like he's seen a ghost and I go in and there's no place to sit. You stand in Mr. Moore's office, but he's seated behind his desk. And there I see my high school application. And he says, oh, you know, Mr. Gride, I, I have to tell you, you made a mistake on your application. I said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Moore. I, I tried really hard. I worked very hard to, to get that all right. So, you know, just tell me what it is. I'll fix it because I want to go back to anywhere. But here he said, yes, I see you've put down Central Commerce as your high school. And I said, oh, yes, sir. No, that's what I want to do. That's That was my intention. So that's not a mistake. And he said, no, I think you've made a mistake. He takes out his fountain pen, crosses out Central Commerce and writes in Bluer Collegiate and says, Mrs. Murray, who is my homeroom teacher, and I have decided that you're going to go to Bluer Collegiate. And, and he says, is that OK? At this point, I would have said yes to just about anything to get out of there. So that's how I ended up at, at Bluer Collegiate instead of at a commercial school. And uh, I had four or five experiences similar to that over my career. Maybe we'll come to how I met Ian Binney through Bob Sharp at the U of T Law School. And that was during the law school years? Yes. So go ahead. Uh, so the, the next similar event was um, I in second year, I was Bob Sharp's research assistant. He gave me the worst job, I think, 
worst legal job I've ever had, except maybe for a week in Timmins where I had to go in February. There was no heat in the factory. I had to look for documents in. But but I, I was uh, Bob's research assistant, and he had me read every single decision of the Exchequer Court and the federal court. Um, this was, of course, long before there was any uh, computer research and long before the U of T had air conditioning in the library. But anyway, that was the summer we were to look for articling jobs. And so I had gone through the list of litigation firms and I had figured out the ones I wanted to apply to. And I had done very well in law school. So I was surprised that a couple of firms wouldn't even give me an interview. Why do you think that was? Well, I know why it was. It was because my last name ended in a vowel. And this is 1977 before Bay Street became more inclusive and more open to uh, in those days, Italian Canadians. Um, and so as I was sending out my applications, Bob said, oh, well, you have to apply to a firm called McTaggart Potts. And I said, I've never heard of this firm. And he said, no, no, well, I, I do a bit of contract work for them. And so you have to go meet Ian Binney. And I didn't know who Ian Binney was. And so I said, because it was Bob Sharp. Okay, I'll I'll do that. So he, I then called. He said, "Call uh, Rosalie Ian's secretary, and she'll set up an appointment." Well, I called Rosalie Ian's secretary, and she blew me off. And so I went back to Bob, and I said, "You know, Bob, I'm sorry. I I did what you asked. I called, and she said he's too busy to see me and to get lost." He said, "Oh, I forgot to call her." So he said, "Wait right here." So he gets on the phone. I can hear Rosalie yelling at him about this, you know, impertinent guy who calls up and just wants to come and see Mr. Binney and don't I know how busy he is. So Bob calms her down and he gets me an interview with Ian. I go and see him in his backyard and he's doing gardening and I'm having a beer. And uh, we talked for a long time and I thought, this is incredible. Yeah. Human being. Never happens. I think it, it still happens. Well, not in COVID-19 time, that's for sure. But I've done student interviews in the last couple of years that were similar in either beer on the patio out there or a, a glass of wine. Um, so I, I uh, had offers from uh, McCarthy's and Faskins and Blake's and uh, for reasons mostly because of Bob having such a huge influence on me, I ended up going to McTaggart Potts. So imagine working at a firm of about 20 lawyers and the key litigators besides Ian were George Strathy, who was Ian's junior, um, Arthur Stone, who went on to be a judge of the Federal Court of Appeal. George Strathy signed my bar certificate. Oh, he did? Yeah. Oh, well, then good for you. Um, and uh, there was uh, Bob Peck, who went on to be general counsel of the Institute of Chartered Accountants. Uh, Tom Dunn, who went to Gowling's after the firm blew up. Um, and I had the most incredible articling experience I could have ever hoped for. I got to work with Ian 
on a case involving the city of Hamilton. And I guess because Ian had been told by Bob that I liked sitting in unair-conditioned libraries, he sent me to the city of Hamilton archives, which were actually in the basement where I spent a couple of weeks looking for old documents concerning the ownership of the Hamilton Harbor, because there was a fight between the city of Hamilton and the Hamilton Harbor commissioners. Um, and so I, I uh, worked there for all of my articles, and then I worked through the bar ads, and Ian went off to Ottawa to be Deputy Minister of Justice. And so I moved to Macmillan Bench after that, back when the trust companies were, were blowing up. But to this day, I keep in very close touch with Bob and with Ian and um, whatever skills I think I developed, at least as a young lawyer, uh, I certainly learned a lot of them from Ian. And even today, when I'm talking to one of our students, I can hear Ian's voice in the back of my head about a particular issue. Um, in fact, one of the things I just said to a student yesterday was, you know, that what I was taught as a student is that you never settle a case with your own client. Ian Binney told me that the easiest way to settle a case is you get a client, you go to the other side, you get whatever offer you can get from them, and then you beat up on your own client to get them to take the offer. And he said, that's exactly the worst thing you can do as a professional. Our job is to beat up on the other side and then let our client decide whether they want to take the offer or not. We're, we're advisors and we're trusted counselors, but we're not the one who says you should settle or you should not settle because, you know, your risk tolerance is perhaps very different than my risk tolerance. So once you understand as a layperson what your chances are and what the possible outcomes are, then you and your family get to decide, do you take a, a deal or do you take your chances on the outcomes in, in a courtroom? And that's a skill that I watched Ian as we were dealing with the Hamilton case, you know, and he was dealing with a very fractious client because it was the whole city council of the city of Hamilton. But, you know, I watched him use that skill set to get them to come to grips with the whether they wanted to settle or not. I, I actually, my experience, I've been doing this now for 45 years. I, I tried my first case in October of 1976, and I still remember losing it badly. Um, but, you know, I, I have, over those many years, had very few clients who have what I call settlement remorse. Because I think if you push your client to settle, they often come to resent you because they feel like you were the ones making the decision rather than letting them make their own decision. And if you if you tell them that the worst thing about settlement is that they own the settlement, they're the ones who have to say yes, they have to accept the compromise. And often you'll have a client say, you know what, I'd rather have a judge tell me I lose than take a deal that I don't think I want to accept. Well, when I was going through my law society fight, which went on for nine years, at the beginning, Law Society came to me with a 
settlement proposal. <laughs> and I talked to 10 or 15 lawyers, all very senior lawyers, whose opinion I respected. Every single one of them told me to take the deal, that I couldn't win. It would cost me a fortune, would be a distraction. Nobody would care. Nobody would remember. Um, and that was very good advice from people who really had my best interests at heart. But I just couldn't get my I could get my head around to figuring out why to do that. But I couldn't get my heart around to saying that was the right thing for me. But, yeah, exactly. And so luckily, my wife and my family were both not at all keen for me to settle because they knew that's not my character, especially since the settlement involved what I considered to be a fair amount of groveling. So, so we fought and, you know, had a happy ending in the Supreme Court. Although when we got to Ottawa for the last chance to win, I was losing 18 to one. So the final score was 21 to seven against me, but I got the six most important votes when it counted. So, um, so you know, uh, I've kind of gone on probably for too long, but again, that, what I think students need to always try to do as they are articling is to learn not only the lessons they're being given, the work they're being asked to do, also to look at the skills that senior lawyers bring, bring to bear on a given situation. Because I, I learned a lot just by being in the same room as Ian, even though I was the guy you know, buying the coffee and driving the 72 Vega. So this is really great stuff. And it sounds like you were very lucky to meet such good mentors. But if you can go into a bit more depth about mentorship, not only the importance, but more what could one do if they don't have access to such quality mentors that you had? How did someone grow as a lawyer without such mentorship? So there's there's three or four things that that person can do. Um, first of all, there's a very large body of great books written by lawyers and about lawyers. And so I can think of 25 or 30 biographies that I've read of lawyers, everybody from John Robinette to Clarence Darrow to Louis Neiser to... There was actually a question here about what books you recommend. So I'll happily take you up on your list of book recommendations and include them in the show notes. I, I will get you a longer list. Some of it's even fiction. In fact, I just finished and I recommend for you this summer... Scott Turow's latest book called The Last Trial, um, involving a, a character that he has developed over the years, who's now a very senior uh, lawyer, um, doing his what may be his last criminal defense. And it's got a spectacular description of all of the sacrifices that he's made over his career and why he's done that and how the, his family has had to pay for the, the price of that. 
Um, so certainly you can learn a lot from reading about the life experiences of other great lawyers, many of them American, but there's some Canadian. Um, there's a spectacular biography of Claire Leroux Dubay that Connie Backhouse wrote that, in fact, before we leave, I'll give you a copy to take with you if you haven't read it, because it is a great Canadian success story. So that's number one. Number two, there is a lawyer coaching and mentoring network Law Society provides. They will, we will connect you with someone who will provide you with coaching and guidance as you go along. Um, so that's the second thing. And you can establish a good working relationship with somebody and, and just uh, keep that relationship going as you as you develop. Thirdly, I think law school provides an enormous set of resources. I mean, the, the law professors that I had at U of T were spectacular uh, mentors because you could go to them with problems even after you'd left law school. They would introduce you to great lawyers in their circles. And, you know, you, you could all call Joe Groy up out of the blue. And, you know, if I realized hopefully in the first couple of minutes, you weren't a crazy person, I'd be happy to spend 10 or 15 minutes with you. But if, you know, Bob Sharp called me up and said he wanted me to spend an hour with some young person, of course, I would do that in a, in a heartbeat. So when you're in law school, that is the time to really start to develop relationships with professors and to use those relationships to really build off other relationships. Um, and then lastly, you know, of course, if you've got spare time, I even when I was articling, if there was a great case that I knew was going on in the courthouse, I would sneak off and go and sit in the back and watch great lawyers battle it out. And of course, as as a student at McTaggart Potts, I was blessed with the opportunity of seeing Ian and great lawyers on the other side in a bunch of cases. Um, so there's still a learning experience that you can get by actually going and watching uh, great lawyers practice their craft. Yeah, I also used to uh, go down to Osgood Hall during my high school days and watch the great litigators in action. And you know, that's one of the things that motivated to me to become a lawyer in the first place. And, uh, you know, in addition to learning uh, by watching the great litigators, you, you can also learn a lot from um, mistakes having been made. I'm wondering, are there any mistakes that come to mind, black courtroom blunders, so to speak, that stand out in your mind that we can all learn from? Well, I had lots of those experiences. And it, in when I was in law school, you got, if you did legal aid work, clinic work, you got lots of trial experience. So by the time I articled, I had done 40 or 50 trials on my own with very little guidance from, you know, there was a clinic lawyer, but he was busy. And so off you would go and you'd get your head kicked in. Um, I, I remember once being in front of a crusty judge named uh, Robert Denieper, who I think has passed away, but I was representing somebody on a traffic offense, probably careless driving or maybe, maybe even impaired because in those days we could do minor criminal code matters. 
So I'm making my submissions and Judge Dnieper says, I've heard enough, Mr. Roy. And I said, well, I'm not finished yet. He says, well, I think you are. I said, well, I'm sorry, Your Honor, but I've got a few more submissions I need to make. So he has a big, tall back chair. He swirls his chair around. So I'm now looking at the back of his chair in the court. And I've never had this experience before. The court reporter's smiling and the clerk is kind of about to start to giggle. And so I figure, well, I better create a record. So I turn to the reporter and I say, I'd like the record to reflect the fact that uh, the court has turned its chair around. And I'm now being asked to make submissions to the back of Judge Dnieper's chair. And from the back of the chair, Judge Dnieper says, well, Mr. Gray, I'm not looking at you, but I'm still listening to you because that's sort of my job. And I said, well, thank you, Your Honor. And I finished my submissions. And then I stopped and I said, that's it, Your Honor, I'm done. And so he swivels back around and proceeds to acquit my client, which was the good part of the story. But then as I'm packing up to leave, he says to me, well, you know, Mr. Groy, when a judge asks you to sit down or that he's heard enough, it's it's often a, a good sign as a defense lawyer because uh, he wouldn't do that if he was going to convict your client. And I said, well, you know, thank you, Your Honor. That's a lesson I will always remember. But I can tell you, as a second year lawyer, uh, I was a junior on a case where a very senior lawyer, we were taken into chambers by a Supreme Court judge. And the Supreme Court judge said to my senior, I've heard enough, Mr. So-and-so. So, you know, I don't think you need to continue, do you? And the senior lawyer said, oh, well, my Lord, if that's how you feel, then of course I won't. And as we were leaving, I said to the senior, no, no, we can't do that. I mean, he's not said he's heard enough because he's going with you. And if you don't create a record, you've got some great stuff that's still left. No, we're going to be in trouble. And the senior lawyer said, no, no, no. When a judge tells you to stop, it means he's going for you. Well, course, he wasn't going for us. And when the decision came out, we lost 100% because he bought the evidence of the witness that we were asked to stop cross-examining. And so I've always remembered, and I tell young lawyers, when a judge says they've heard enough, if you're not done, you have to finish. You, you, You might want to shorten it up, but you need to finish what exactly it is you want to say. Um, I mean, I, I think I made a mistake a couple of weeks ago. I was being asked to do a, a Zoom hearing in front of a judge and the other side had booked only an hour for a case that really needed four or five hours. And so the judge asked the other side to consider an adjournment because she had not had a chance to read the material. And the other side said, no, they want to go ahead. So the judge let them go ahead. Um, So when it came time for my submissions, I said to the judge, you know, look, I can't do justice to my client's position in 12 or 14 minutes. So all I can do is give you a very brief summary of of the argument. 
Yeah. And and my client ended up losing. Yeah. And if I could do that over again, I would have just said no. Uh, I'm not able to represent my client in the time that's available to me. So I'm asking for the adjournment and I should have forced that issue to be argued and resolved because thinking that maybe I could get a better result because it was unlikely the court would decide against me when I didn't get a chance to make full submissions turned out to be a mistake and we lost the case. Now, that's not to say we would have won had I done it differently, but I certainly wish I could have a do-over on that one. That's very comforting to know that even somebody with your experience also has certain regrets and wishes for improvements. It happens every single time I'm in court. I don't ever, even in cases where we win, I'm still a very harsh crit crit critic of my performance. I could have done this differently. I could have done that better. I could have done this more cheaply. It took too long. It cost too much. Um, it's If you ever get, I think, to the point where you think you did a great job, it's maybe time to retire because you'll never get that experience again. Yeah, that's good advice. You can't beat yourself up too much, but you've got to try your best and do whatever you can under the circumstances. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, these are all gems of wisdom, and I'm sure it takes a level of experience to know when to push back on a judge and when to, uh, you know, stand down. And, that, you know, that does come with experience. I'm trying to keep this story somewhat chronological. At this stage, you're at this vibrant law firm with all these leading litigators. And then I believe your next step was the, to the Securities Commission. How did that come about? What ultimately made you jump ship from a law firm to go to the Securities Commission? Um, again, that was another one of those fortuitous events in my life. I went to Harvard Law School one summer. They offered a three-week program back in the mid-80s. And I had always wanted to get a LLM from Harvard, but I couldn't afford to do that as a younger lawyer when I was finishing school. So that gave me a chance to go and see what Harvard Law was really like. And it was a fab fabulous program. Anyway, I met Hermano Pascudo there, who was the executive director of the Securities Commission. And we talked several times and Finally, one day at lunch at Romanoli's table in Faneuil Hall, we drank too much and he offered me a job to be sort of chief litigation counsel. And uh, I said to him, you know, look, we've had too much to drink. You go home. I'm, I'm going to Cape Cod for a week. When I get back, if you still want me to do the job, you call me up when you're sober and I'll probably accept when I'm sober. Um, so he called me up. I took the job. I took a significant cut in pay. Um, but it was the best professional experience anybody could have ever had. I mean, here I was a young guy who'd had great opportunities, but I was still third chair, sometimes standing in the back. Um, now I was going to sit first chair. And I remember going in on my very first day of work and going into this empty government issued office. And there's a file folder on my desk. And so I put out my bag and 
sit down in my chair and open up the file folder. And on the top is a letter from John J. Robinette to the Securities Commission saying, you know, will you please have someone call me because I'd like to talk about trying to resolve this case. So I'm reading this letter and I'm thinking, come on, this is somebody's pulling a fast one on me. So I go down to her Mantle's office and I say, you know, come on, you're kidding. And he said, no, 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 that, that's the first case I need you to resolve because we've been trying to get it dealt with. And the lawyer who was supposed to be handling it just was too busy or whatever the reason was. So I got to call, you know, Mr. Robinette's secretary, and she offered to have him come up to the Securities Commission. And I said, no, 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 I'll come down to his office. And he had a double office at McCarthy's. So his secretary had an office and then his office was in behind her. And I went in feeling like I was having an audience with the Pope. So I uh, I did my best to not embarrass myself. We ended up making a deal. I remember he started the conversation by saying, you know, I understand you're new at the commission. Um, I want to wish you the best of luck with your career up there. And then he said, I think this is what the commission needs to get in order to settle this case. And I had just taken the Harvard negotiating project at the law school and Roger Fisher, who teaches negotiation, says the most one of, if not the most important aspect of a successful negotiator is to understand the needs of your client, what their interests are, and then figure out if you can give them that as part of a compromise. And so he then said, this is what he thought I needed and proceeded to lay out something that was exactly what we had talked about internally. And then he told me what he could offer me, which was most of what I needed. Um, but, you know, at that point, I think if he'd asked for the shirt off my back, I would have given him that as well. So I came back and said to Romano, you know, here's what the proposal is and here's how we can settle it. And he said, sure. So I settled it right off the bat and uh, got a very nice note from Mr. Robinette afterwards, thanking me for being so gracious. And I thought, how much better does it get? I mean, here I am. 30 years old, I've been practicing for a little over four years, and my first case is with one of the greatest lawyers in Canadian history. Like, I, at that point, everything else I did up there, and I did some great cases, Canadian Tire and Canada Malting and Torstar, and, um, but none of those experiences, I think, would ever top the first experience I had with, with Mr. Robinette, which is not an opportunity that I think very many young lawyers got to have in their careers. Wow, that's such an incredible experience to have at such a young age. It must have you know, set you on a path to success already. Um, you can talk more about the Securities Commission if you want, but as far as I know from there, you went to Heenan Blakey. Is that right? That's right. He, uh, after five years at the commission, I'd gotten married after four years. And the funny thing about working for the government was uh, while I was there, I got two promotions and both times I had to take a cut in pay. And then oh, when boy. I when then when it was time for me to to leave, 
I didn't think I could continue to be the director of enforcement while I was looking for a job. So I got a demotion to a a job we created called special counsel. And I got a huge raise as a result of that demotion. But I was still making, you know, not enough to support a a family. So I and Hermano and Stanley Beck, who were my two mentors at the commission, had both left. And so I knew all good things come to an end and it was time for me to move on. So I did. Uh, But I couldn't find a job because um, while I was at the commission, I had been asked to create a an effective enforcement program and i believe that to do that you ended up having to take cases against the mainstream of bay street when they were appropriate and so i had four or five what i considered to be soft offers where senior litigation partners in major firms had come to me and had said when you're ready to leave the commission we want you to Call us because we need somebody like you in our litigation group. This was back when the SEC was getting into effective enforcement and white collar securities work was just starting. Um, so I stepped down and I called all those firms and they all in the first call were very keen. And uh, all of them called me back and said, you know, listen, we're really sorry, but When we went to our corporate partners, our corporate partners said, no, we don't want that son of a bitch working for us. And in one case, uh, one of the lawyers told me that the corporate partners were keen, but when they talked to a couple of their major clients, they were told that if they hired me, they would pull their business. So I, I spent six months essentially being blacklisted and Luckily, again, for me, Heenan Blakey was just opening up in Toronto. They were looking for somebody to start their litigation group. Um, A couple of lawyers I knew very well worked there. Um, I went down to Montreal and I was very lucky that they offered me a job. Um, So I was the first litigator in Toronto. I left 10 years later. There were 25 litigators at that point. Um, And it was a wonderful firm. I have nothing but good memories and good things to say about them. Um, But my practice changed dramatically when John Felderhoff hired us in 1998. And so what I found was it was creating a tension with my partners and I just got increasingly uncomfortable. Stay tuned for part two, where Joe goes into real detail about the case, how it built up against him and the steps he took to defend himself all the way up to the Supreme Court. A real fascinating story with all sorts of anecdotes will be released in the next couple of days. Bye for now.